On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the Integrity Commissioner's report today on Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, and what this means. Uh, It's being politicized. Of course it's going to be politicized, but surely a Prime Minister who is caught this way is a more meaningful story than just another political fight story, isn't it? Also on the show, on the podcast today, we're chatting with Kim Goldman, who is the sister of Ron Goldman, who you know from the O.J. Simpson story. 25 years later, she has a new podcast out confronting O.J. Simpson. It's well worth a listen, but she's got an awful lot to talk about, an awful lot of interesting addendums and stories and things about that case 25 years ago. She will join us. Stick around for that. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So the story of the day today, which I'm sure you've been hearing about plenty because it has been talked about as it should be talked about, is that the ethics commissioner has ruled that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has broken the ethics rules of this, the conflict of interest rules that this country has to try and help SNC-Lavalin, which of course goes right against all the assurances that the Prime Minister gave us back in February, March, whenever it was, that this was, there was nothing to this. This was absolutely nothing to see here. Well, absolutely, that's wrong. There is lots to see here. I want to bring in Stephen LeDrew. He is a past president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He's also a National Post contributor. If you've ever seen his stuff on the National Post website, especially, you'll understand why we want to have him here. Terrific speaker. Uh, Stephen, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Good to chat with you, Scott. Uh, So let's start at the very end of this. We've now got a prime minister who has been, I don't think the word is convicted of this, but has been found to be guilty of ethics violations, of conflict of interest violations. What what comes of this? What's the result? Well, the odd thing about the the legislation guiding the ethics uh, commissioner is that there's no sanctions. In other words, there's no penalties. It's not like... A judge say, "Okay, you're guilty, and therefore you're sentenced to whatever days in jail, or here is a fine." The ethics commissioner has done his extensive study without the help or the cooperation of the prime minister's office, and he has said, "Okay, here is what I have found," and that's the end of it. And I understand that originally, when they created this, they thought the shame of being found to be in a conflict of uh, of ethics by the commissioner would be enough penalty, i.e., you either leave office or you're going to get voted out of office. Well, we know Trudeau is shameless. He, uh, this is his second uh, conviction, if you will, or finding against him by the, uh, by the ethics commissioner. First one was when he took his family down for that Christmas vacation, you'll remember. With the Aga Khan. With the Aga Khan to the private island and Canadian helicopters and stuff all over the place. And, uh, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's unbelievable. And then he said the Aga Khan was a family friend. It turned out he hadn't spoken to the Aga Khan for 30 years. I, you know what? Everybody needs friends like that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if they've got money, sure. If they've got dough, sure, I want to find a few of those. <laughs> so that was the first one. And then, now, here's the second one. And this one, though, as you rightly pointed out in your intro, uh, for the word, for the get-go, I remember that press conference where, where the allegations came up. It was in the Globe Mail. People asked him questions. He said, absolutely not. Not a shred of evidence. Absolutely not true. He said that for days. It's called stonewalling, as you and I both know. And you just deny it until the evidence is so obvious. that Okay, well, let's. Maybe there's something here, but and I and and you know, 
you point out that I do videos for the National Post. I record them every Thursday morning. I do one a week. I had mine all scripted and done for tomorrow morning until this story hit. <laughs> it's it, well, I'm redoing it right now. But you know what? He said everything was appropriate, and he has no idea what's appropriate. Well, he, he, after this today, so he was down in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and he was spoken to, and he said, I take responsibility for this. And then it seems everything that followed after he says, I take responsibility for this, was the opposite and deferred responsibility by saying I was fighting for Canadians and I'm doing what they would want me to do and I'm sticking up for Canadians and they expect this and on and on and on. It didn't sound at all, Stephen, like there was any responsibility being taken for anything because if you didn't do anything wrong, why would there be responsibility for something? As I say, it's sort of mealy-mouthed words, he says. and He says the right thing at the start, as you say, Scott, I take full responsibility for this. The buck stops here. And then he goes on to say... I'm not taking any responsibility. But if you look at his words carefully, it's because he doesn't know what responsibility is. And it comes down to, I think it's coming down to the fact that this guy is so poorly educated that he doesn't understand law. Not every prime minister has to be a lawyer, uh, but he doesn't understand processes. He doesn't understand what is appropriate. And even in today, when he was saying, well, I take full responsibility, your listeners know, Scott, when you stand up and you say, I take responsibility for this bicycle crash or for my, my girl or boy doing something wrong and they're my child and I'm going to take responsibility. Every one of your listeners knows what that means. But even if he's not educated in this, and I don't know, I mean, I assume he knows what responsibility is, but he has people, he has smart people around him who would surely say to him, you got caught. You did something wrong. Here's what you did wrong. But it doesn't. Say, he's the emperor. It sounds like who's not being told he has no clothes. No one will explain this, or no one will ex- will stand up to him. By the sounds of it, I will. I will take issue with what you're saying, Scott. When you say that no one around him has, you know, is smart, or the words you use to, to tell him this, because we saw the uh, the evidence in the hearings in the house, you know, in the house committee. His clerk of the privy council was clearly out to sea. He had no idea what was going on. And we also know what happened to his principal secretary, who resigned. Yes. And we know that there's two lawyers in his office, Quebec lawyers, who were contacting the prosecutors in this case in Montreal. They had no, not only they had no right, it was illegal for them to be doing that. There are also, we've got to take a quick break here for weather and traffic. When we come back, though, there are two other people who are very prominent in this story who apparently told him he was doing something wrong. And I want to get to that after the break, because this seems to me, of anything, the part of this story that may resonate with a lot of people the most. We'll do that with Stephen LeDrew right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Stephen, there's a lot of things. I mean, a lot of people may look at this and see this as a partisan thing, may try to brush it off, may say this is, you know, uh, if we go with Andrew Scheer, it's going to be worse, so we have to ignore all this, whatever. The one thing that I find that a lot of people, I believe, are going to have a hard time with is that in this story, there were two very strong female cabinet ministers who stood up to him, and he essentially, and I don't know another word for it, threw them under the bus and allowed their careers almost potentially to be destroyed to take the fall for him. How, how does he now turn to the liberals who say he is the feminist prime minister and keep any of his credentials, any of his credibility when he's done that? Well, Scott, I'm going to take it one step further because I said publicly last when this was uh, occurring, I said he fired 
the attorney general. And he did. He demoted her. But when you're the attorney general and minister of justice of Canada, and you're given some other relative, relatively minor portfolio, that means you're fired. Why were you fired? He was, she was fired because she didn't do his bidding and because she believed his bidding was illegal. Well, Which it turned out to be. Well, now, exactly right. Exactly right, Scott. Now we have the ethics commissioner, who is amazingly bipartisan, amazingly uh, fair, saying, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Prime Minister. The, this woman was right, and you were wrong. She's a, a trained lawyer, very experienced, very ethical. And you, you part-time drama teacher who got into this job, saying that, you know, she was wrong all the time. Well, you know, you were absolutely darn wrong. So then, Scott, that comes up to the question, and, and you brought that start and say, well, is he charged? Is he convicted? No, he, there was a ruling against him. So it's up to the people of Canada now, in my view, to determine whether, in fact, this guy has the character to be put back in office again. And, and my view is uh, that he doesn't, because he has shown time and time again that he has broken promises, that he has, he has you know, really been out to shaft a lot of people in Canada. And the whole start of this, your, your listeners will remember, is that it was a criminal code amendment which could have allowed this to happen, and SNC-Lavalin lobbied for it, and he stuck it in an omnibus uh, budget bill, which he said, I would never, ever do that. He did. So what happens now, what should happen in the meantime with Jody Wilson-Raybould and Philpott? Should, should he, whether or not he will, should he be going up in front of the cameras and offering a public apology now that they have been seemingly completely vindicated, vindicated and he's been shown to be completely wrong? Well, Scott, this is what I just said you know, earlier about you and your... Your, your listeners know what responsibility is, and the responsible thing to do would be yes. But uh, he has chosen liberal candidates to run against these two women, and uh, we know that this prime minister, as with so many cases where he's had it wrong, he has destroyed people's careers uh, in many cases, and he just, oh, well, that was, that was them, this is me, because I'm entitled, you know, I'm I was brought up in Ottawa. This is my lifelong job. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, the arrogance of, uh, of this man. And so I don't expect any contrition. Well, the other part is the next time, and again, some people may think that it's being partisan by saying this. I don't think it is. Next time he stands up on behalf of Canada and apologizes for the misbehavior or perceived misdeeds of someone in the past <laughs> for something that happened hundreds of years before any of us had anything to do with it, I think we have a fair response to say, tell you what, you apologize for what we know you did wrong first, and then we may listen to you apologize for other people who aren't here to defend themselves, but I don't see that happening. I don't see it either, and, uh, and uh, in fact, I know that. I, you know, I know those two MPs who he was, when he was leader of the party, wasn't prime minister, he accused them, based on some flimsy evidence, of sexual harassment, and they were kicked out, one from Quebec, one from Newfoundland. They never won re-election. Their lives were ruined. Their families were ruined. And later on, when he was accused of sexual harassment by that reporter in, uh, was it B.C. or Alberta? B.C. 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 Kokanee. Oh, we have a different understanding now. <laughs> you know, I mean, this guy will never own up to anything. And uh, Well, maybe he has a different understanding of the ethics rules. Yes. There's one Same set thing. of rules for him and one for everybody else. 
It is, uh, look, as I say, I go back to, we only have a few seconds left, but I go back to the beginning. Uh, I, I don't see anything coming of this, maybe in the election, although it's a long way off and I think people have short memories. Th- this whole thing, this whole process seems to be entirely toothless if there's nothing at the end of it that there's any penalty, and there isn't, so it doesn't seem to actually do anything in well, the end. I think you're right. The process is toothless, but we have carried it through, and there is now a conclusion to it. What we have to find out is what is the penalty. If Canadians are... Well, they aren't stupid, but if they're silly enough to vote for this man again, then we deserve our, our, our penalty instead of his penalty. Stephen Ledrew, former uh, president of the Liberal Party of Canada, now a National Post contributor. Go look it up at go look him up at nationalpost.com. Great stuff there. Uh, Stephen, thanks for doing this again today. My pleasure. I have to go back to rewriting my thing for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> will take not. we will take a break. Back after this in the Scott Radley Show. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday at this time. We started a little conversation about what had happened in BC, in northern BC, with those two guys, Schmigelski and whatever his name was. I can't even think now the other guy's name. Uh, the two guys who allegedly, we believe, killed those Australian tourists and someone else and then went off on the running from the law and the manhunt and all the rest. You know the whole story. And so we got talking about this because... In the wake of all this wrapping up, when the two bodies, when the two killers were found dead in the woods by suicide, the father of Schmigelski was interviewed on 60 Minutes Australia. Australia, 60 Minutes Australia, of course, because again, one of the victims or two of the victims were Australian. There's the connection. Anyway, when he was talking, he explained that he too was grieving this because he had lost a son and further because... I guess of the guilt now that he's going to bear because his, not only is his son gone, but his son did horrible things. Well, the sister of one of the victims didn't like his answer. That was pretty clear. And what she wrote was this, or what she said was this, your sorrow is for yourself. You cannot relate to us as we had no doings in the cause of your pain. When you've played a part in the cause of our pain, To the murderers and their family, the appropriate action when mistakes are made is taking responsibility. So we were talking about this last night. The underlying current here is if you are the parent of someone who does something horrible like this, you bear some of the responsibility. And that led to a conversation and we ran out of time. And so we're doing something we never do. But we're going to go back. We're going back the day after. We're going to continue with this because we had a lot of people lining up to call in. We couldn't get to everybody. But I want to hear from you, uh, continuing the conversation. If your kid did something horrible, heaven forbid, I mean, look, you would hate to have this happen to your worst enemy, that their kid would do something so terrible, so heinous. But if your kid did something like this, went on a killing spree, went on a sexual assault spree, whatever it is. As a parent, what responsibility do you bear? What part of this do you bear? Is there any responsibility on you? And let's take it off of you then. Because, you know, many people are going to say, well, wait a second, if it's on me, if it's my kid, I don't think I'm responsible. I think I did an okay job raising my kid. They just snapped. What if it was someone else's kid and they hurt someone in your family? Would you be forgiving of the parent or would you be saying, no, they, they are partly responsible for this. They raised those kids and they clearly didn't raise those kids properly. 
What do you think about this? 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you're on your cell phone. Is there any amount of responsibility that a parent bears for the horrendous actions of their child? And again, one more thing before we go to the phones. I understand every circumstance is different. I understand every situation is different that you're going to say in some case. And so yesterday when we were talking about this, my example was if you were a parent who had beaten or sexually molested or something, your kids, where you could clearly then draw a line between their behaviors and your behaviors that you clearly had a hand in creating a screwed up kid, I would say, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, then I think the parent bears some responsibility. But what if it's just a normal family story that you don't have any sexual abuse, you don't have any physical abuse, your kid has just gone off and done a school shooting or something? What responsibility, if any, do you bear? Let me go first to Sandra today. Sandra, how are you this evening? I'm very well. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. Where do you stand on this? Well, um, my mom, when I was uh, 14 or 15, I know for sure it was below 16, but I had done something, whether it was drinking underage or shoplifting, whatever. I was in front of a judge, and my and I, I'm charged with whatever. I don't even remember, but I was charged with something. And my mom stood up in front of the judge beside me, and she threw her hands up and said, I don't know what to do with her. You do something with her, because I can't control her. And what was your response when she did that? I was devastated. Did it change? Did it change you though? Devastated. And uh, I remember the penalty I got and it was delivering newspapers and $25 was two weeks of delivering newspapers and, uh, and, and whatnot. And mom and I, prior to her dying, I'm in my fifties, sixties. And uh, prior to my mom dying, we talked about it and she said, I didn't know what to do with you. You were just doing this, that, and the other thing. I thought, okay, well, throw you at a judge and see what a judge will do. And were you sour at your mom for doing that? Or now that you're later, not later in your life, but you've got some years under your belt, do you look and say, you know what? She did the right thing. Uh, um, To be honest, I was sour for the two weeks. (laughs) I had to deliver the newspapers after that. But was it the right thing that she did? Absolutely. Sandra, Absolutely. I I appreciate the call. Thank you. It's a great it's a great personal story. So you've got a mother here who wanted to do something, a mother here who didn't know what to do, but clearly her kid was acting out, and so she let the judge do whatever rather than defending her kid. There you go. There's one example. Now we got to go to a break, but we're going to come back. We got we got lines nine zero five six four five three two two one or star nine nine zero zero. If you're on the line, don't hang up. We're going to come back and get to your calls. Do you think that parents of kids, adult kids, or teenagers, but old enough to know better. If you're a parent of a kid or an adult kid who does something horrendous, do you bear any responsibility for that? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Come back and talk about it after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are continuing a conversation this segment about that we started last night about what responsibility, if any, parents bear for the behavior of their children. And this comes from the killings in BC and then the response from the victim's family where they say, you've played a part in the cause of our pain to the murderers and their family. The appropriate action when mistakes are made, 
clear evidence or clear indication that they believe the parent is responsible is taking responsibility. What responsibility should parents play or hold or bear? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show. Thanks for being here this evening. Glad you are along. Coming up this hour, we are going to, in just a couple of moments, be hopefully planning to connect with Kim Goldman, who is the sister of Ron Goldman, who 25 years ago, you became very familiar with that name when the whole O.J. Simpson trial was going on. She's got a new podcast out. It is well worth a listen. We'll talk about it in just a couple of minutes. Uh, before then, let me give you your quiz question this evening. This one is going to be for you music lovers out there. Those of you who know your way around some music, and it's not going to be really, really recent music. It's going to be music from once upon a time in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s and 90s. The guy's still around who we're going to talk about. He's still alive. He's still with us. Don't know that he's performing a whole lot anymore. In fact, I heard that he may be suffering from arthritis or something now, which prevents him from being what he once was. Hope not. Nonetheless, here's your quiz question this evening. Who was the guitarist for the British band Cream who carved out a successful solo career after breaking away from that group? Who was the guitarist for the British band Cream who carved out a successful solo career after he was finished with that? 905-645-3221 or star nine nine. Zero, zero. Give Lorraine a call. Give her your name. Give her your guess. See if you can get that one. We'll get to it at the end of the show. If the lines are ringing, by the way, hang in there. She'll get to you as fast as she can. Don't hang up. If they are busy, call right back. I don't want to take any more time, though, before getting to this. I want to take as much time as we possibly can get this evening, uh, because the next story that we're going to talk about is one that you know well. Everybody knows this story well. It was 25 years ago this summer that O.J. Simpson was charged with two counts of murder when his wife and Ron Goldman were slaughtered. And you, as I say, you know the story, you know the details, you probably know everything about this, or think you do. Uh, We've all moved on from this, though, because that's the way life works. We recall the story now as a fascinating bit of modern history, and maybe even in a weird kind of way, pop culture, uh, maybe as an example of the mess that happens when you miss celebrity in the justice system and race and all the other things. But my next guest did not move on understandably, because Ron Goldman was her brother. And all these years later now, Kim Goldman has come out with a new podcast series. It is called Confronting O.J. Simpson, and it looks at various facets of the case, her life, her brother, a whole lot of different things. Uh, She joins me now. Kim, how are you today? Hi. Hey, thanks for joining us this evening. Glad to have you along. When I saw the uh, podcast pop up and just saw the picture of it and then saw your name that was attached, I got to tell you, I did not know what I was going to expect. I didn't know if this was going to be you taking a chance to rant at the things that went wrong in the trial or whatever. I got to tell you, it was, uh, it was not that it was really interesting. Listen to all of it. Uh, it was fresh. And and I got to tell you the most surprising thing perhaps to me, considering your position here, how respectful this podcast was even to some of the people that if, if I was in your shoes, I don't know that I would have been so respectful. <laughs> um, thank you. I'm, I'm hearing that a lot. Um, and I, I, I guess the, the, the best way for me to, to respond to that is that the show wasn't called Confrontation. Um, it was really just trying to confront um, feelings, thoughts, memories, concerns, um, 
confusion uh, as to how this case manifested itself and, and how we ended up with the outcome we did. Um, and really to try to just take some control back out of a story that I feel like has been out of control and to, and to um, I don't know, kind of put a fresh perspective on a, on, a, on a narrative that I think has gotten a little out of whack over the years. Um, and, you know, I think as it relates to some of the, to some of the guests, um, I don't necessarily agree with all their positions. I certainly don't respect some of their decisions, especially when it relates to the jury, but I didn't feel like it was necessary for me to be negative and, and insensitive towards what their experience was. I I bet you've been asked this, though, before, is that it's been 25 years, which, by the way, blew me away. It, it seems unbelievable yeah. that it's been 25 years, I'm sure for you as well. well. I'm sure you've been asked why you wanted to go and bring this up again, because it's got to be difficult for you every time you start to talk about this. Um, well, it, you know, it's difficult every day because my brother's not here. And, um, you know, I talk a lot about it in the podcast, too, that it doesn't mean that because I'm missing my brother or because I've had such trauma and tragedy in my life, it doesn't mean that I can't experience joy and, and love and um, happiness. Um, but I think that, you know, over the years, um, as I just, you know, you, you said it in the opening, it's become part of our, 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 our pop culture. Um, and I think that I, I've been sort of disappointed at some of the uh, stories that have been running the last couple of years, some of the fictionalized versions of things, some of the conspiracy theories, and there's a whole new generation of people that are learning about the case, and I'm learning about it through warped perceptions, Mm. um, to say that lightly, Um, and I felt like, you know, this is our story, and um, I wanted to be part of the conversation in an honorable and and honest way, and um, you know, it's always part uh, it's always part of, of 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 my life, and and it's happening whether I participate in it or not. So I figured this time I might as well. Was there also a part, Kim? Was there also a part of this during the trial? You were seen every single day, pretty much on television. The world knows you as someone who was sitting in the front row, looking either very stern or crying. And again, completely understandably under the circumstances, but you didn't really have much of a three-dimensional personality from that in the eyes of a lot of the world. Was this partly to also say that you? You did have thoughts on this, and you are a person. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. I, 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 I appreciate that people, you know, uh, notice that I'm upset or I'm angry, and I think that, as you said, you know, it's justifiable, and I think it's appropriate. Um, but I also have lots of feelings and thoughts about lots of things. I mean, I'm a victim advocate. I run my own business. I'm a single parent. Um, I, I, I'm an author. I. I do lots of other things that 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 connect me to this story in this case, but also um, have kind of put me into a different realm, and, and I'm proud of all that. And and I I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to take something really horrible, and have tried to do right by it, and tried to make a difference. And um, you know this 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 case should leave people upset. It should leave people angry um, because it's it's there was a grave injustice that occurred. Um, and so I'm figuring out ways to make it part of my life and, and how to survive through that. I want to go through a bunch of things from the podcast. I'm going to do my very best to avoid the spoilers as they say, because I want people to listen to it. Cause as I say, it's, it's really interesting. It's really well done. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to dodge around, but some things is probably going to be a little unavoidable before this all happened 25 years ago, while your brother was still with us, did you know much about OJ Simpson? What did you know about OJ Simpson before all this happened? Nothing. Had you seen his uh, movies or watched football or anything? 
No, I don't. I don't remember having one thought about him. I was 22, pretty self-absorbed at that time in my life. Um, I was going to college up in San Francisco. I was in my last semester, just about to start my master's program and or apply for my master's program. Um, I was a full-time student. I had an internship. I was working. I was in a relationship. I was not focused on celebrity and sport. Um, plus, I was raised in Chicago, so I wouldn't have been a Buffalo Bills fan. Um, and I was just living my life, and so who he was never didn't occur to me. How did how did you um, jumping around a bit here? And I know this part is in the podcast, but I'm going to ask anyway. Tell the story of how you found out about Ron being gone. Um, I was, as I said, I was living in San Francisco. I was working um, uh, at Wells Fargo at the time, uh, bank, and uh, um, I was ending my shift, uh, and I was getting a ride home from my girlfriend Amy and. Um, I had seen a little bit of the news earlier in the day, but I didn't know what I was watching. It was just a crime scene, and I said, you know, watching the bodies be wheeled away. Um, and I got home, and my boyfriend at the time um, w- was acting very weird and strange, and he ordered me um, to call my dad because um, he had already received a call from my dad um, letting him know what had happened. And um, so I called my dad. I was a little annoyed that he was bugging me to call him so much because I just wanted to relax after working all day. Uh, and I called my dad, and he said, "Did you hear anything on the news about, you know, the killer?" And I said, "No." And anything about Nicole Brown Simpson? No. And then he just blurted it out that my brother um, had died, and uh, I remember him saying that. And I just kind of fell to the ground and was screaming and couldn't understand what he was telling me. And then next thing I know, I was packing a bag full of clothes and hopped on a plane and went home. There are you. You spend time in the podcast with both Marsha Clark and Chris Darden, uh, which is interesting because there's a lot of people who believe that they, at times, did things that made a bit of a mess of this case. Uh, what are your feelings towards them today? Um, I I have tremendous respect and admiration for both Marsha and Chris and Bill Hodgman, the other member of the prosecutorial team, um, and all law enforcement and everybody that that worked. You know their fingers to the ground working on this case. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that people want to find fault um, with what they did. Uh, I think it's really easy for all of us to, you know, be Monday morning quarterbacks and, and make decisions and thoughts about how they handled themselves. Um, They're the only ones that were fighting for my brother and, and Nicole. And I, I, I just, I respect what they did. I think that they were up against something that was bigger than any of us believed and understood. And I also think they wholeheartedly believe in their case because all of the evidence pointed to one person. Um, and not to give too much away, but if you listen to the episode around the jury, uh, the jurors, um, I don't know that much would have made a difference. So I'm going to find fault with the killer and um, with the jury that let him walk free. Were those your feelings towards the prosecutor prosecution team during the trial, or did that vacillate a bit depending on how things were going? No, I didn't. I didn't understand. I mean, again, I was twenty two years old. I'd never, you know, I'd never buried anybody. I don't think I'd even had a maybe a speeding ticket at that point. You know, I I was raised to believe that the justice system was where you went to get justice, mm. and that's where the truth prevailed. So I didn't understand that anything really that was happening was you know, going to work against us. Over time, I think during the case, I started to wonder because I was watching the jury and um, their body language told a different story than one that you might want um, to see as a a victim. Um, But 
again, I think that when you're when you're in it and you're listening to it, all of the evidence pointed to him, and so you don't think that someone's going to discount all of it. Um, there were for sure moments I thought, oh, well, I guess that kind of seems a little bit reasonable, but no, it can't be, you know. And your mind starts to play tricks on you. Um, but you know, Marsha and Chris were up against uh, up against a huge you know, celebrity and, and, uh, the jury loved the defense. And so I don't know. Well, and you talked to many, to you talked to many people in this, including a, a number of witnesses whose evidence, who, who, what they brought wasn't necessarily presented at trial in retrospect. Uh, did that make you feel better, worse, no change about the case that was presented? Cause some of those things, when I heard them, I went, huh. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I, I don't know if it would have changed anything, but it certainly opened my eyes, made my eye cock up a little bit. Yeah, that, those those conversations were hard. It was hard to hear um, Tom Lang, who was one of the lead detectives, talk about some of the evidence that he collected that didn't, you know, and witnesses that didn't get used, and and to hear it, you know, kind of rattled off and you know, and in order was difficult because then you're left with well, maybe one more thing, one different piece, one one more piece of evidence would have made the difference, and I just I I resigned myself at this point that I just don't think it would have. And so I go back to that, well, what if? Um, and that's hard to reconcile um, because, you know, why not just throw it all in and see what sticks? But there was a method to the madness and um, it didn't work. But I don't know that the jury would have seen anything any other way than they did. You sat with Cato Kalin and I found this very odd. Um he came across like he was a very close friend of yours from long ago who was revisiting an old friend. It, was he? Like, what was your relationship during the trial? Did you know him at all? I didn't. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that about him. I think that, you know, one of the, I, I hope that one of the, the commonalities that people find as they listen um, is that it was really important for me to, to, to highlight how the case impacted um, each individual person you know, at, in the aftermath of it, whether I support their position or agree with their decisions, um, this had a profound impact, whether it was financial, you know, reputational or, you know, from a professional standpoint. I mean, people really were impacted by this in such a profound way. And we all had this unique shared experience, but through very different lenses. And mm. Cato is that person. I didn't remember meeting him during the trial. I met him on a five-year or a 10-year or 15-year show when we, you know, where are they now kind of things. Um, and that was the first time that I met him. And I remember he was super nervous to meet my dad and I and was worried that we were harboring all this anger towards him. And um, and when I reached out to ask if he would do it, he was like, what are anything I can do for you? And that was so humbling for me. And I was so appreciative of that. But he's just a, he's a down to earth guy and just wanted to share and help. I don't think there's any doubt that when I listen to this, the most compelling part of this whole podcast was when you sat down with a couple of the jurors who had been on the jury who acquitted O.J. Simpson, who, by the way, if people haven't picked up now, you don't ever refer to him by name. You call him the killer all the time. They'll pick that. They'll get that. But you were in the same room with these jurors sitting there talking to them. Yeah. Face to face. Was that awkward? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Those were probably the most, um, anxiety provoking conversations. Um, because I was really straddling that whole, you know, I didn't want to provide them with, uh, I don't know, a respite for their guilt. Um, if that's what they were going to share with me. Um, but I also didn't want to come at them with a lot of hostility because I wanted to try to understand where they were coming from. I wanted to try to sh- extend some compassion, 
Um, because again, regardless of their decisions, they suffered greatly too. And I wanted to understand how they were, how it, how it, you know, impacted their life, how they came to their decision. Um, I, and that was hard. It was hard. Um, like, don't you think they were, didn't you think they were idiots for coming to the conclusion they did? I do. Um, but I, you know, they, they, and we talked about that, like it was, it was, it was, it's mind-blowing to me that you can sit in the room with each other. I never missed a day of testimony. I heard the exact same testimony that they did. I did have the benefit, however, obviously, of hearing things that, you know, the sidebars and some of the conversations with pundits, and, you know, I did have some of that, but I saw the same evidence they did, and to listen to them come to a polar opposite conclusion and and buy into some of the conspiracy theories was mind-boggling to me. Um, And then to hear how they you know, deliberated or lack thereof. And, you know, I, I was upset about all of that, but I don't know that I, I, I was surprised because it's kind of what I always assumed. Um, it was really hard to have them validate my thoughts though. But one of them was really, really emotional, which I, I caught me off guard because I thought, why would you come and sort of bury your soul in this particular way? But w- what did you interpret from that when he started almost, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but almost weeping at one point. He, he was, um, it was very emotional in the room. Um, he, he was, he was very sensitive and, um, I think he was super nervous. Um, he was afraid of how I was going to treat him, which I get that. Um, uh, I think, and that softened me a little bit because I saw him vulnerable. Um, but he stuck to his guns and I appreciated how candid he was and that even though he was sitting in front of me, he didn't waver and, uh, I think I challenged him a little bit. I was trying to be gracious, um, but that was hard. But I did appreciate that he, you know, he was, he's a dad and has kids and, you know, they're, he has emotion about how it impacted his life and his family and, and how it's impacted him, you know, personally over the years. And I, I, I have sensitivity towards that, but I, I cannot understand how they can still hold hold their candle to the, what they voted and still to this day, it's hard for me to understand that. You made several requests, as I understand it, uh, through various channels to see if you could get O.J. Simpson to speak with you. Is that correct? Um, we did. I I wrote a book a handful of years ago, and while he was um, sitting in prison in Las Vegas, Nevada, for um, crimes he committed, uh, I reached out to him and asked if I could see him in that environment, and I got close. Uh, but I... I opted not to participate because I was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I didn't want to do that. Um, and so we went at it differently this way, but tried again. Um, I think that the outcome for me would have been slightly different because seeing him in prison had a very profound effect on what I thought would have a profound effect on me to see him in prison, shackled, you know, behind bars, um, seeing him now and having the opportunity to talk to him while he had his freedom. I think I struggled with a lot. Um, but we did attempt to talk to him and that just didn't happen. And I don't know that I expected to, but what would you have ever said to him though? What, what could you say to him? What could you ask him that would, well, I don't know. What, what would you have said? I, I didn't get that far yet. (laughs) (laughs) Still working um, on that. Yeah, I am working on it. And part of it, I, I, I think it's, it's more of in the moment what I would be feeling. Um, it's, it's, it's the process to get to that place. I mean, even while I was writing the letters a handful of years ago, just 
writing them and asking and putting it in the mailbox, that was really powerful for me. It was very um, empowering to be able to get myself to that place to even put the request out there. So there is benefit um, and and resiliency and recovery in that process, which is always what I'm wanting to do. This one was, like I said, a little harder um, because had he said yes, it would have been out in the open. It would have been, you know, in an uncontrolled environment. Um, we would have both walked away enjoying our freedom. Um, so that presented some obstacles to me that I hadn't quite processed yet. So, um, and I don't have questions for him, uh, quite frankly. I mean, I, I probably will muster up some if I ever get the chance, uh, but I didn't have questions of why or how. And it could um, happen, I, I suppose. I mean, it's highly yeah. unlikely, but you could bump into him somewhere in public. And I, I, I can't even fathom what would go through your mind. Like, what would you be thinking if that ever happened, if you saw him across the street? A lot of a lot of curse words. Um, I would imagine my my inner trucker uh, would probably emerge. Uh, um, I don't know that I would be able to show my my graciousness there. Um, I, but I honestly, I, I don't know. Um, I really, this whole process has been really authentic for me, and I didn't come up with questions. It was really just about being present in the moment um, and really tried to be a, a listener and to be true to my feelings and my thoughts. Um, had I have I, if I were able to put myself in that situation with him, I'd have to do the same thing. I, so I'm not entirely sure. Do you really think, though, truthfully, that if he had written back or his people had written back and said, yes, we'll sit down with you, do you really think that you would have gone through with it and sat down with him? At that point, um, again, with him being in prison, it was really just truly a visual for me. It was knowing that I had the power to walk in and walk out and that he did not. Um, my brother was left to, you know, gasping for for air for his last minute of his life. And he watched the killer walk away. My brother was found um, with his eyes open. And so I believe that he watched his killer walk away and that's haunted me. Um, and so there's was some power that I felt with me being able to be the one that walked away. Um, mm. You know, some of that is just, you know, just what your heart feels. And, and um, so I, I don't know. I, I, again, you know, s- some of this is really just to, to, show myself and to and to allow myself just the process of going through it and even if I got to the place where I was standing in front of them and I went yep nope I'm good you know that would have served its purpose um so I don't I don't know I'm just kind of open to it we only have a couple minutes left but right around the time that you launched your podcast uh, and I think it was right around the same time it's within a few days uh he decided to launch a twitter account coincidence I'm thinking no um (laughs) My uh, the podcast was released on June twelfth, and I learned of his pod uh, of his Twitter account on June fourteenth, and I'm pretty sure it was up for at least a day at that point. Um, and his first tweet was he had some getting even to do. So I yeah. don't know. Um, when we released the if I did a book handful of years ago um, that we uh, were ordered to publish, that was his asset. Um, he broke into a hotel room the night that that book was released because he was so angry. So um, maybe doing this podcast. Uh, angered him again and and uh but who knows yeah i, I checked yesterday and he, I, don't, I don't i'm sure you know this already i'm not trying to yeah. you know ruin your evening uh, he has eight hundred and seventy-five thousand followers on twitter how do you wrap your head around that oh well slow down um <laughs> i think you know i i well let, let, let's look at it this way if you if you have a couple minutes to spare um and you you know, are looking for some comfort, go through what the people are saying on his Twitter page um, and what the followers are saying. Um, it, they're not fans. 
Um, you're, you're going to find a few that are peppered throughout there that are, are longtime supporters or, or believe that he's innocent or whatever you choose to feel about him. But most of the people on there remind him daily of what he did to Ron and Nicole, and I take great comfort in that, and I appreciate um, the support in that. Um, but it feeds his ego just to see that number. It feeds his attorney's ego to see that number on there. But at the end of the day, those people are not entirely supportive of him. And as I said a few moments ago, you do always refer to him as the killer. When did you start doing that and what was the thought behind that? Um, That was during the criminal case. Um, Dominic Dunn, who um, uh, was a famous author and and journalist at the time, um, his daughter Dominique Dunn was murdered uh, and he was my seatmate, so to speak, in the criminal case. Judge Ito, that was the one good thing he did was that he gave me this incredible um, gift of Dominic Dunn, who sat with me and, and was a very good friend to us during the trial. And I was so frustrated listening to people refer to him just by his first name and, and you know how casual people were when they talked about him. I mean, in my head, he was a defendant for double murder. Why are people referring to him, you know, like as the juice? It was just so frustrating. And, and you know, I said, he was a killer. He's a murderer. And, and Dominic said, yeah, that's what he is, a murder. That's what we should call him. And it was just kind of like that because I was so angry um, at how familiar people felt when they referred to him. And I wanted to reframe that for myself, and it has stayed with me. Last thing, you have a you have a son now, correct? I do. He's turning 16 in September. So he wasn't born when this happened. And, I mean, 16 is now of an age that, uh, you know, he can sort a bunch of things out by himself and understand things. But earlier on, uh, I know in the podcast you say that he knows about his uncle Ron, but what did you tell him? about what happened and about the trial and everything else. How much do you tell your kid about this stuff? You know, age-appropriate information. So, um, you know, when he was littler, it was a bad man, um, you know, hurt Uncle Ron. And um, as he got older, he started to learn a little bit more about what that meant and that, you know, my brother wasn't coming back. And um, and who, he didn't really ask me who the bad man was. Um, it wasn't until my brother, uh, my son became uh, more involved in sports. I don't, it, it, it's a stupid story, but we were picking numbers for a lottery and, and I told him he couldn't pick number 32. And um, that was just sort of my own thing. And, and he said, I can't pick 32. And I said, no. And he said, was that his number? And I said, yes, because at that time my son was a big Michael Jordan fan and he knew number 23 was associated with Michael Jordan. And so he assumed that 32 was the football number. Um, and so it kind of progressed over the years, and he knows. Um, honestly, I don't know if he knows how brutal um, the attack was. He did ask me a long time ago, and I was very matter-of-fact with him, but I don't know how much he remembers and it hasn't come up. Um, our deal is that he can't search the Internet without me being with him because um, there's a lot of gruesome information on there. But he knows enough to know how important it is and... Um, and the legacy that, that his uncle Ron has left and how much of a hero he is. And that's the most important thing for me. The podcast is called Confronting O.J. Simpson. Um, as I said, I've listened to the whole thing and it is way better, and this is a compliment, it is way better than you might think when it's an O.J. Simpson thing. There's been a lot of O.J. Simpson schlocky stuff out there. This is m- worth a listen. It is much, much better than a lot of that stuff. Uh, Kim Goldman, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the time. Again, go online. Uh, You can find it at all the places you would normally get a podcast. And it's called Confronting O.J. Simpson. I think it's 10 parts. There may have been another one that came out today. I'm not even sure. I haven't listened yet. But uh, not your typical true crime, schlocky, ridiculous, overwrought kind of thing. It's, It's very, very well done. It's very interesting. 
and it is well worth your effort to do this. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.